0: So only Platonists, no peripatetics, can lecture from this podium, right? Um, first of all, just a very quick thank you for uh, having me come to St. John's. I've been dreaming of this for actually many decades um, because I so love the idea of education that's cultivated here, the challenges of your texts, the challenges that your teachers face in having to read so widely across texts. Um, you know, those of you who, are, <clears throat> who are, or are students here now, even the youngest of you have been here for a few a few months, I mean, more than half a year already, and so you've probably started to appreciate this, but nobody appreciates as much as a somebody who's been in a more professionalized context um, can. The, the learning and the vulnerability to new learning that your tutors subject themselves to in, in being your tutors, and um, I've always just admired that tremendously. Um, so I'm very happy to be in, in your community. Um, I <clears throat> have a big blackboard right here, which you can, you can look at and you can see on the blackboard are three titles. And I just wanna mention them now because I was gonna put them up so you'd have some sense of where we are as we work our way through uh, my problem. One is three dates. We're gonna talk a little bit about the, the relevant dates uh, for the, the retelling of the symposium. Uh, the second title is Aristophanes' Exposé of the Circle Men. We'll talk a little bit about his marvelous myth of the cutting of human beings into into halves. <clears throat> and the third is Aristophanes' Failure and Socrates' Task. Uh, and that, that task gives me the, the title of the talk, which is Making New Gods. Uh, that was the charge that was leveled against Socrates. Uh, in the prosecution, the second was corrupting the youth, of course. Um, Making is the word that Socrates uses in describing the charge. Uh, I'm not going to be suggesting that Socrates actually regards himself as making new gods, but providing access to new gods uh, in that sense of making. Uh, That is his task, and I'm going to try to put us in position to appreciate uh, the way in which the symposium does that. so let me say, first of all, just a couple of words about, about reading Plato for me. <clears throat> I have found enormously fruitful uh, reading the dialogues, not, not only as dramas, that's a part of it, but as dramas that are meant to be, in some form or other, uh, published by being read aloud in self-selected groups. Um, I invite you over to my house and we have my slave boy read, da-da-da-da. Um, uh, in the way that you'll find in the, in the opening frame of the Theotetus, where uh, uh, two old guys decide that they want to have a reading of this famous conversation that Socrates had with Theotetus, and, and they have the slave boy actually read aloud as they sit and listen. Uh, and I, I take that as a, a clue to what publication might have been like. That and the Phaedo, um, uh, where you have Phaedo describing Socrates' last day to Achaecrates, and those wonderful moments where Kecrates bursts in, uh, he can't contain himself as he hears this narration. And Phaedo then steps out of his role of, of narrator and responds to acecrates, and they talk about what's been um, about the narrative, about the content of the narrative, from a perspective outside of it. And it, it, it seems to me a truly Socratic Plato, who would have written texts that are meant to be read aloud uh, with the possibility of interruption by a company that had selected itself in to hear those readings. Um, What are they going to find in such texts? Well, in the drama of the texts, they're going to find themselves mirrored back. Um, The characters are are like the characters, I think, of comedy. Uh, Many of them are ordinary. They're individuals. But um, in them, you can find reflected, profound, deep currents of Athenian life. And so if you go and you hear a dialogue read, and you're an Athenian, uh, you're going to see yourself in some part of your own being mirrored back. Um, The symposium, I think, is as rich an example of that as any of the dialogues. so just, to, just to mark what is probably too obvious to require much detailing, Phaedrus speaks of Eros from the vantage point of his understanding of the epic tradition, the strong privileging of Homer. Uh, Pausanias speaks of Eros from the vantage point of a uh, keen understanding of laws, written and unwritten, and especially privileging Athenian, Athenian law. Uh, Eryxemachus speaks of Eros from the vantage point of the sciences, and strong privileging of, of medicine, but music is also very important. Uh, then obviously in Aristophanes and Agathon we here represented the voices of uh, comedy. And I said obviously, but now i got to choke for a moment. Uh, with Agathon, not at all clear that we're hearing the voice of, that must be him, right? <laughs> the voice of tragedy. Uh, Agathon represents a real uh, shift in tragedy. And it's very striking that you don't have in the symposium, you have Aristophanes, you know, why not Sophocles? Why not Euripides, even, even more likely, um, within the, the fiction of the time of the, of the event? But Plato chooses to give us Agathon, the new tragedian who uh, has abandoned the old uh, epic plots and made up his own plots, has uh, separated the action from musical interludes, the musical interludes are now entertainment, and has essentially turned tragedy in the direction of um, an entertainment in which you come out being impressed with the inventiveness of his own plot-making mind. Uh, music composing mind. Um, And then, of course, we have Socrates, representative of, that's a big story, and dot, 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 and Alcibiades, the young swashbuckling politician who is coming into the early height of his political success in Athens and is just about to persuade the city, uh, still enjoying the after effects of the peace of Nicias, which has gone on at this point for about five years, uh, to persuade the city to launch the massive Sicilian expedition, which turns out to be total disaster. Um, uh, So you hear the symposium read and and you see your great traditions, the epic, uh, the laws, the sciences, comedy, tragedy, and even the politics of the time, uh, given voice by these various characters. You look to those characters, you're seeing in a certain sense parts of yourself uh, reflected back. Now in, in most of the dialogues, Uh, By no means all, but in most of the dialogues, we have a character interrogated by Socrates. We do have that in the symposium, but not for a long while. That's only Agathon. Uh, But I take it that that interrogation is designed to give us, who have recognized parts of ourselves in the characters, a chance to find the limits of the positions that we take on various issues dear to our hearts, exposed by Socrates. Socrates. So there's the, the dialogues for us who are sitting passing the red wine bottle around listening to the slave boy read are occasions for self-recognition, critical self-knowledge, and if we can rise to the challenge, which is always left usually at the center of the dialogue indirect, if we can rise to that, uh, not just self-recognition and self-knowledge, but also self-transcendence. Um, um, now within that framework. Uh, my project for reading the symposium focuses around the famous refutation of Agathon. Let me just quickly remind you of the argument, and um, then the rest of the evening, I'm going to be be trying to put that in the context that I think the dialogue affords for us, trying to respond to to Plato's challenge, uh, trying to learn how to receive Plato's gift. Um, there, my theme of making new gods will, will begin to make sense. I hope. Uh, so the argument is actually uh, very simple, deceptively simple. Um, eros is of something or nothing, clearly of something. Uh, does eros involve for the one who is in eros uh, that he desires that something? Yes. Uh, does one desire what one has or what one lacks or is in want of? The Greek there, endea is a very subtle word. It means not just that you don't have something, but it also means that not having it, you also do have a kind of need for it. Um, So you're wanting it. Um, Lovely old English word. So eros is of. Eros uh, involves a desire of uh, that which eros or the one who is in eros lacks. Um, And now Agathon, remind me, what is it that you said in your speech just a bit ago? Eros desires or is desire of or is love of? Wasn't it the beauties? Right, Socrates? So if eros lacks what it's as eros desire of, mustn't it lack the beauties? And so not be beautiful. Oh my God, Socrates. And aren't the goods, aren't good things beautiful? Right? Well, if eros as eros uh, is desire and his desire lacks what it's of, then mustn't it lack not only the beautiful, but also but good, and therefore be not only not beautiful, but also not good. Socrates, I guess I didn't know what I was talking about, so Zagathon. Now um, that little argument, um, such a powerful argument for the whole history of philosophy, I think uh, is a bombshell in the symposium. But to appreciate the gift that it amounts to, we have to contextualize it. And so I want to do that by uh, carrying us through three frames of reference with me so far? So, first frame of reference, uh, the, the symposium as a retelling of this famous dinner party. Uh, <clears throat> the symposium, first of all, is probably written around 380, maybe a little, a little earlier, maybe a little later. I think it's impossible to nail that down. Um, but it's important to, to be roughly aware of that, because when Plato makes a gift of his dialogues, um, it's a gift to the city, and the city is always existing uh, in a time and in a place and in a situation, um, and this dialogue is written long enough after the end of the Peloponnesian War, the Thirty Tyrants, the counter coup that puts the Thirty Tyrants out of power again, the restoration and Socrates' trial. Long enough after that, I mean, maybe twelve, fifteen, seventeen years or so after that, that uh, Athens, I think, we can presume is beginning to get back on its feet. There's a kind of renewal process which is occurring. Um, uh, it never completed that process. I think the, the 300s were actually a pretty tough period, uh, but it's beginning to become a major player in the Greek world again. Um, now, therefore, it's it's really timely, I think, for Plato to present a dialogue uh, in which, through the characters, we Athenians are reintroduced or reminded of our great traditions, our laws, our epic, our comedy, our tragedy, our sciences. Uh, because getting back on our feet, what could be better than to be put back in touch with those values as they're articulated by those great articulators of our values, those, those traditions? Uh, won't that give us an orientation, uh, a, a rerootedness, so to speak, in our ancient strengths? Um, and in a time of renewal that's exactly what one needs. Now the, the, the conversation that's retold, of course, occurs in 416. That's the year that Agathon wins the the tragedy contest. In between 416 and about 380 there's a third date. Uh, This is when Apollodorus is flagged down on the road uh, by someone who wants to hear the story of that old, those conversations between Socrates and Alcibiades uh, uh, at Agathon's house. Um, And it turns out that as Apollodorus immediately reports, he was asked to do this very same retelling just the day before, so there's a, a keen interest in th- this old, this ancient event. Um, um, when is this retelling? Well, says Apollodorus, uh, it's actually um, been many years since Agathon left Athens. Agathon and Pausanias went off to the tyrant's court in Macedon. Um, it's an interesting fact. Uh, but Socrates is still around. Apollodorus um, is hanging out with Socrates, and of course, in the Phaedo, he's going to be one of Socrates' companions at the end. Um, so this has got to occur before 399, the trial and execution date. Um, but many years since Agathon left, that was about 408, um, so we have to press it back towards 399. Now, why is that important? Um, why would Plato frame the dialogue this way? He could have skipped this middle date completely and just had a retelling um, essentially undated, untimed. I think what's interesting to think about, uh, if you're an Athenian hearing the dialogue, is here you are brought back to your ancient traditions, uh, hearing their articulators in a time of relative flourishing for the city. As I say, the peace of Nicias is still at hand. Athens is feeling enough confidence in itself that it's about to let itself be persuaded to launch this massive Sicilian expedition. Things are relatively good. That's in 416, but in around 400, 401, whenever that might have been, before 399, when Apollodorus does the retelling, things are absolutely disastrous. Things are terrible. Uh, Athens is lost to Sparta. Through Sparta's uh, intervening, the 30 tyrants have been put in place. The 30 tyrants have been overthrown overthrown in a counter coup. Uh, It may be that Socrates' trial is already on the horizon. We don't know that. Uh, but Athens is a broken city, a city on its knees. Uh. Now, why would Plato interpose that? It seems to me the, what, I mean, so the likely answer to that is because when we hear Agathon and Pausanias and Ereximachus and so forth speaking so joyfully and so articulately and so positively about Eros, uh, completely unaware of the disaster that's to come, We hear them speaking with a kind of innocence, and here's the important point, of the implications of the way they themselves are representing those traditions. Those implications, if we can judge by the fate of Athens 15 years later, are very bad. So Plato is inviting us as hearers of the dialogue to wonder what was problematic about the way the Athenians of 416 were, so to speak, rooting themselves in their traditions, taking up the values articulated by those traditions. What was problematic that at least didn't shield them from and maybe even led them into the disaster that uh, reaches its Snader in about 400? Um, and why would Plato want us to be asking that question? Because now, in about 380, he wants us to have access to those traditions. We need them for the renewal of the city. But it's important that we not reroute ourselves in those traditions in a way that will repeat the errors of those earlier rootings and lead to the same disaster all over again. So I think we're invited to hear the, earlier spe- the early speakers in, in the symposium with a critical ear as Athenians. Where were they going wrong? And how might it have contributed to the disaster that intervened, and how might we, recognizing that, be able to go back to those traditions free of that error in a way that will allow us also to be free of repeating the same disaster? So we hear the dialogue with critical ears. We're on the edge of our chairs, um, edge of our seats. Now the second frame is Aristophanes' speech. And on my, on my magical blackboard here, which I described to you earlier, it writes Aristophanes' expose of the circle men. Um, so just remind yourself very quickly what's happened before Aristophanes' speech. Phaedrus has spoken, uh, drawing on the epic tradition, given us a cluster of examples of Eros. Uh, Alcestis dies for her husband, goes unnamed. Um, Orpheus is willing to go into the underworld, but not to die for the sake of Eridice, Uh, a slovenly case of Eros, not up to Alcestis's example. And then we have the wonderful example of Achilles, the beloved who loves his lover back, um, uh, privileging Homer, Phaedrus Phaedrus does. Um, That's followed by Pausanias, who says, um, really... uh, we need to make some distinctions here. And he distinguishes, of course, between the heavenly love and the earthly love. Uh, By drawing that distinction, what Pausanias does is to shift our attention from the level of examples to the level of kinds, or the level of principles. And a a frequent move in lots of the dialogues because Plato wants conversation to occur at the level of the forms. Uh, And the idea of the forms haven't been introduced, but we're talking in principle about eros when we sort out our examples, the ones that Phaedrus gave us, according to the two kinds, the heavenly and the celestial. Uh, now, where does Pausanias get his insight into this distinction? It's by reflecting on the laws of uh, the I- Ionian cities, the cities in the Greek hinterland, and above all of Athens. Um, and you remember, what he says is, the in the hinterland, people are inarticulate, um, they're uneducated. Uh, The lover doesn't want to be put to the test of being articulate with the beloved, so there the law just welcomes eros unqualifiedly. Whereas on the coast of Ionia, where people are living under the barbarians, and so under satraps, or or locally under tyrants, delegates to the satraps, um, eros is completely prohibited, forbidden. Now, the eros we're talking about is the noble eros. It's the eros of the elder for the younger, in which the elder, inspired by the beauty of the younger, Uh, makes himself the younger's teacher uh, and conveys the the values of the city, his wisdom to the younger. Um, What's good about Athenian law is the complexity with which it says anything goes to the lover and puts uh, firm limitations on the beloved, the beloved's yielding. That puts the lover to the test, the test of time, first of all. He's going to have to wait, delayed gratification. We'll see whether his love is just a fleshly thing or an ordinary uh, uh, ignoble love. Or heavenly. And to prove himself, he's going to have to be responsible to the beloved, make himself the beloved's teacher, and show that he has something to teach. So, Athenian law, by saying yes to the, the lover and no to the beloved, basically brings the best out um, of the lover, and so secures an institution which in, in which Athens has is able to transmit its values generation by generation. Um, a stroke of, of a sort of anonymously cultural genius, I think, actually, in, in truth. Um, Along comes Ereximachus, Ereximachus says, wonderful distinction, Pausanias, but uh, don't you realize that what you've seen, this noble love, shows up not just between uh, elder and younger human beings, it shows up among all living things, and not only that, it shows up among all things that exist. So immediately we have an expansion of the field to include all biological phenomena, and then beyond that, uh, all ontic phenomena of any kind. Uh, Where do we look to see other examples of the kind of eros that Pausanias has isolated, uh, we look to the sciences. First off, he starts with medicine, uh, then he goes to music, and you remember Ereximachus argues that what the sciences are able to do, in this this way they're like Athenian law, they're able to discriminate between uh, the right and the wrong balances of the opposites uh, whose relation governs any phenomenal sphere? So, in the, in the sound of musical, in the sphere of musical sound, for instance, the high and the low would be the opposites. The science of musicology can discriminate between discord and concord, uh, and show how to bring those opposites into the right relation. Those will be love relations. Um, in medicine, uh, the hot and the cold—you you know, when you're sick, you're you're sweating—or the wet and the dry, you 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 have a fever and you're wet. Uh, medicine knows how to discriminate between the right and the wrong relations between the opposites. Um, the right relations will be examples of the noble love, and uh, not only can medicine discriminate, but n- medicine, and the same for, for the musician, can show you how to secure the right relations. So the doctor will give you um, a prescription, give you a, a, a practice by which you'll be cured of whatever the ailment is. Um, and so forth. And uh, Eryximikos goes on at the end of his speech to, to introduce even the art of divination, which he says has great power, power to regulate the relations of human beings and gods um, by recognizing, I think, you know, where human beings have behaved in a way that makes the gods angry, uh, making that diagnosis and showing human beings how they must change in order to come back into the right relation of opposites, human to divine, divine to human. Um, Okay, so that sets the stage. I apologize for those of you who um, could have done all that in your sleep having read this dialogue. I know very intensely as you do here in the fall. But that sets the stage for us uh, to do some thinking about Aristophanes. Um, You remember in the back of our minds, we're sitting there as Athenians on the edges of our chairs wondering what went wrong in the way that the Athenians were mining their own traditions um, such that disaster ensued. On the face of it, one might think that Aristophanes' speech has really nothing to do with the preceding speeches. Um, He says twice jokingly to Ereximachus, he's going to make his speech rather different from yours. Different doesn't necessarily mean opposed. It doesn't mean it's going to contest. Um, And his speech is is absolutely delightful. It's humorous. I mean, you you all know um, the great story of how human beings used to be uh, circles, shaped like circles. And they got uppity, uh, like Otis and Ephialtes. decided they were, since, since they had twice as many arms and twice as many legs and twice as many heads as we now do, um, uh, they had enormous amount of power and they got, that went to their heads and they thought they would storm Olympus and take over. Um, and Zeus, to solve this problem of usurpation, um, uh, decides, this wonderful idea, he doesn't want to destroy them because that will eliminate the sacrifices the human beings give the gods. He cuts them in half, which makes them weaker turns them towards one another so that their ambition uh, to overcome the gods gives way to their need for each other and doubles their number. So he gets twice as many sacrifices, right? So, uh, fantastic suggestion, right? So, so Aristophanes tells us this this wonderful story. It's a hilarious story, deep and profound story, but by the way in which it represents um, the neediness that we human beings have for one another and the vulnerability that we suffer in relation to our, our being embodied. Um, we're at the mercy of our urges and our passions, um, and we must look to something higher than ourselves um, if we're going to uh, survive that vulnerability uh, to eros, We'll bring us to our other half. Um, what could that have to do with the preceding speeches? I think we get two marvelous dramatic clues. One of them is, and they're actually, they're two clues in the same, same event, Aristophanes' hiccups. So you remember Aristophanes uh, is actually the one who's supposed to have followed Pausanias. They're going from, I believe it's left to right, uh, around the room. But he's got the hiccups, and so he can't speak. Uh, and so he asks the doctor, Ereximachus, he's sitting next to, for a remedy for the hiccups. And Ereximachus gives him a three-fold strategy. He says, you know, first of all, hold your breath. If that doesn't work, gargle. And if that doesn't work, tickle your nose until you sneeze. Right? Now we learn after Ereximachus' speech that Aristophanes... While Eraximachus was speaking, cured himself of the hiccups, and he, he had to go to the third remedy. So he started by holding his breath. You can Eraximachus is talking this wonderful account of the, the intelligibility of different phenomenal spheres according to the sciences of those spheres. And Aristophanes is, <laughs> right. and that doesn't work. And so he gargles, you know, <laughs> right? And that doesn't work. I don't, you know, I, I don't think i make myself sneeze, but, ah, whoosh, whoosh, there we go. And Ereximachus Erics, is proceeding. So, now, clearly there's a point here about the vulnerability that we suffer to our bodies. Um, there's also a kind of lampooning of the seriousness with which Ereximachus is taking his own message as he's speaking. And we see this in, in a kind of retrospectively imaginative way when we hear Aristophanes describe with gratitude as having come through the hiccups. Now, those hiccups do something else as well. And for the moment, by, by the way, we, we have to, in all of this, try to pretend that we're Greeks and that when we hear, we see. Um, you know, when you listen to Homer, you don't listen to Homer. You see the world unfold, um, according to Homer's fantastic vocabulary, and all those color terms and so forth. So here you are, you're in the room of the Symposius. Uh, and this is not a Socratic, a, a joke at the Socratic level, but a Platonic joke, because some of the speeches, you remember, we weren't told. Aristodemus couldn't remember them all, and Apollodorus couldn't remember everything that Aristodemus did tell him. But of those that were told, we're given a series of six. So Phaedrus, Pausanias, then the hiccups. So uh, Eryximachus goes in place of of Aristophanes, who waits and then comes in. Then uh, Agathon, then Socrates. And Alcibiades is not a gleam in the eye of the Symposius at this point, right? Those six. What the hiccups do is to break the circle. By forcing Ereximachus to go first and Aristophanes to go second, the circle goes around like retrograde motion then backs up and then goes forward again. Now that's a wonderful clue. Um, one asks oneself, thinking about that, is there a sense in which Aristophanes' speech cuts the circle men, i.e., the symposius? Does, does it identify them as circle men and cut them in half in a way at the level of his deed that would mirror the content of his speech. Thinking about that, you ask yourself, well, in what sense would the earlier speakers present themselves to Aristophanes as circle men? Well, the circle men are the race, enormously powerful, whose power went to their heads to the degree that they thought, Otis and Ephialtes, that they could take over for the gods. So is there a sense in which Phaedrus, so I'm not sure about Phaedrus. Pausanias, Eryximachus, or Storming Olympus? When you ask that question, the first thing you notice is that the Olympian gods go practically unmentioned in Pausanias and Ereximachus' speeches. But you say, still, Storming Olympus, these are encomia, these are speeches of praise to Eros, the god, the god Eros. So Storming Olympus? These seem to be, in a certain sense, uh, pious speeches or speeches of of devotion. And then you realize that what's really being praised, let me back up for a second, what the laws do for Pausanias is enable us to secure the right kind of eros for the city. What medicine does is enables us to secure the right relations between hot, cold, wet, dry in the body. What music does is secure the right relations between high, low, um, fast, and slow, in rhythm. In other words, we, we're praising eros, but through the lens of a series of uh, practices of human reason that control it, that have power over it, diagnostic power and prescriptive power. So you ask yourself, what's really being praised here? The God? human reason and its capacity to control the god. And what what I want to suggest to you is that Aristophanes is trying to reveal uh, exactly that impiety, exactly that exaltation of human reason at the expense of the divine. Uh, The Olympians disappear and Eros is itself made subject to the intelligence of the laws and the reason of the sciences. Now uh, why is this a big deal? for Aristophanes. Remember, we're sitting on the edges of our chairs wondering about the appropriation of their traditions by the Athenians, what might have gone wrong, and so forth. Now we have a pretty strong candidate. Had the Athenians got so infatuated with their own power that they'd forgotten, lost sight of, lost connection with, anything other than and higher than human reason, Uh, why would that matter? Well, human reason, when it has nothing higher than itself, has nothing to be oriented by. And when it has nothing to be oriented by, it becomes instrumental to the advancement of human power. And when those who are uh, treating reason as instrumental to the advancement of human power are living in a world in which the human reason and power are central, uh, they're living in a world in which if there is an other... If there is a higher, if there is a hole outside the human to which the human belongs, they're unaware of it. And uh, not only unaware of it, but in all likelihood doing it violence, and on that account setting themselves up for a fall that they won't see coming. Now, that of course is exactly what happened to Athens uh, in the wake of the Sicilian expedition. So I think Plato is casting Aristophanes, comedian that he is, as a kind of prophet of uh, the um, going to their heads of their own power, the power of human reason that we see in the Athenian culture in 416. Now, okay, um, there's that critique. First thing we want to know is how it fares. Does Aristophanes succeed in unmasking for the Symposius themselves, a kind of pretense of human wit, human intelligence to be the highest and induce a kind of piety, the piety that he says the halved men uh, suffer after they've been cut in half, in which they look beyond themselves to something higher than themselves, namely the god, to heal their wounds. Um, What would the evidence be? Well, it would be what we see in the next speech, Agathon. So when asks oneself, does Agathon speak as one chastened, as one humbled? as one who has a sense of uh, the limits of his kind of intelligence. He certainly starts out by inviting us to think about the nature of Eros first and the benefits and works of Eros second, something Socrates makes a point of praising later on. Uh, But right after that first moment, uh, disaster. Remember, Eros for Agathon has two dimensions. First of all, it's the most beautiful of all the gods. Secondly, it's the best of all the gods. It's the most beautiful of all the gods because it's got, looks just like, if you read the Aristophanes' Frogs, you know, Agathon's own. He describes Eros as young, delicate, supple, um, rather effeminate, um, graceful, uh, smells good. Uh, This is the young Agathon himself. What about Eros as the best? Well, it's got all the four cardinal virtues. It's got justice, it's got temperance, it's got courage, it's got wisdom. But the wisdom it's got is the wisdom, if I may privilege my own art as Eryximachus did his, not recognizing Aristophanes' comment on Eryximachus, Agathon, it's got the wisdom of the poet. Uh, And the kind of poet that's put on display in the rhetorical tour de force at the end of Agathon's speech. What kind of justice? It has the justice of one that never does violence to another nor suffers violence from another. Why? Because all men follow Eros willingly. It's got the temperance of the control of pleasures and desires, why? Because it's itself the greatest of pleasures. And so it controls all the other ones. There you are sitting with your lover in front of the steak, the red wine, the cigar, and your lover starts to take off his or her clothes. What do you do? You forget the cigar. You forget the the steak and the wine, right? Uh, It's got the courage of Aphrodite attested by her ability to seduce Ares. So what is being described here? Well, ask yourself, what is it that all men follow willingly because it gives such great pleasure that it seduces us? It's Agathon's rhetoric, which drives us to a burst of applause at the end of the speech. Um, So Agathon is in portraying not only Eros's beauty but also its goodness portraying himself. And at the end of the speech, 198a, I believe it is, um, uh, Plato has, has Apollodorus, um, in a touch of platonic irony, describe how everyone was so pleased at the speech that the young man had given. It was so becoming to himself as well as the God. Right? Himself as well as the God. So. so in other words, Agathon emerges from Aristophanes' speech completely unchastened. In fact, Agathon has done to the extreme what Aristophanes was attempting to expose in the speeches prior to him. He's divinized not just human reason, he's divinized himself as the practitioner of, and not reason, but rhetoric, a rhetoric which can win praise from everyone. Uh, uh, Aristophanes' speech, in other words, we sitting on the edge of our Athenian chairs listening to the dialogue, we can see has has fallen on deaf ears, uh, has, has failed to work. Now, we want to ask ourselves, as we turn to Socrates' speech, um, why? Why was Agathon unable to hear Aristophanes? Uh, One answer, which um, I think we can we can take without too much discussion, is Agathon heard in Aristophanes' wonderful comic rhetoric a kind of challenge to his own tragic rhetoric. And so he was moved not by the content of the speech, but by its form, to try to see if he could outdo it. After all, he's the guest of honor tonight. He's the the host. He's the one whose victory is being celebrated. Um, He wants to be uh, the one who shines the most. So he responds competitively to the form, not the content, of Aristophanes' speech. Now, how could he have done that, however, how could he have missed that content? Well, because it's given so indirectly. Um, uh, And above all, because if Aristophanes' diagnosis is correct, this is a culture in which reason prevails. So recalling the gods in a comic fable uh, is is not going to do it. What has to happen is one has to appeal to Agathon's reason. One has to make him accountable um, now, secondly, um, an appeal in a comic fable to the gods is not going to work for, I think, a second reason as well. One thinks back to the, picturing, the, the pictures of the gods that Aristophanes gave. So here you have mighty Zeus stroking his beard with his mighty hand, trying to decide what to do about these uppity circle men. They want to storm Olympus. He doesn't want to kill them because then he'd lose the sacrifices. He'd lose the praises that come from human beings, to the gods. So he's so taken with his brilliant idea, the wisdom of Zeus, of cutting them in half. Why? Because not only does that not kill them, it doubles them. And so we get twice as many sacrifices. Now, this is an image of the gods which can make no claim on our reason. It's a comic image. This is a Zeus who is laughable. Um, and laughable not only because of this wonderful figure and all this stuff but also because he wants to be praised by mortals he wants to be given sacrifices Uh, he needs those so in other words Aristophanes speech fails not only because of the challenge that the comic rhetoric poses to the practitioner of tragic rhetoric but it fails as well because what he's trying to bring back into view as higher than the human is in fact laughable from the point of view of human reason. Uh, it's, it's not divine in the sense that would make a claim on our reason um, at all. These reflections I think tell us then what um, if we're reading the dialogue correctly so far Socrates' task is. Socrates has to address Agathon in a way which will uh, make a claim on his reason. He's got to make Agathon uh, use that highest of faculties, human reason, um, in response to him and he's got to find a way in engaging Agathon's reason and Agathon being the star of the show, this will be uh, in an exemplary way everyone's reason, he's got to find a way in engaging Agathon's reason to show him something higher than reason. And show him something as a rational being higher than reason. Because otherwise if he just appeals to Agathon's reason that's the end of the matter. Um, The primacy of human reason is left in place, and the idea that there might be something higher or other to which human reason needs to respond uh, goes by the boards. Um, So what does Socrates do? Well, of course, first of all, the argument that I summarized at the very beginning, he asks Agathon questions. He makes Agathon reply, and he catches Agathon in the contradiction of uh, love being of the beautiful, um, but also as desire being lacking what it's of. Step back now for a second and think about the function that that argument has for an Agathon whom we've now got in context. Agathon has portrayed Eros after the model of himself, or has portrayed himself, so to speak, as Eros incarnate. The praises that he has lavished on Eros, therefore are praises which he's really uh, lavishing indirectly on himself, and he gets confirmation in that by the standing ovation, the burst of applause that comes at the end of his rhetorical flourish at the end of his speech. So what does Socrates do? If he Agathon is the incarnation of Eros, and Eros as desire turns out to lack beauty, he Agathon lacks beauty. If he Agathon is the incarnation of Eros, is also uh, the best, well, but as desire lacking not only the beautiful, but what is beautiful, namely the good, he's also not good. So Socrates uh, is a downpour on Agathon's parade. Uh, Socrates shows Agathon that he himself lacks uh, the very things, goodness and beauty, for which he was indirectly in praising Eros, praising himself. Um, by itself, that might seem to be just like a raining on Agathon's parade, like a kind of mean-spirited putting down of this young man at the height of his success in the city. Uh, but, but is that right? Um, fact, what I want to suggest is that, in fact, by taking from Agathon the pretense, a pretense which he feels rhetorically bound to keep securing, the pretense of being good and beautiful, he frees Agathon, now in the recognition that he's not beautiful and not good, to strive for beauty and goodness. To put it another way, by showing him Agathon that he's not beautiful and not good, he, Socrates, shows Agathon that beauty and goodness transcend him. And precisely because of what they are, for them to transcend him is for him to be not only lacking them, but needing them. Beauty and goodness are precisely as profound goods what, just insofar as we recognize ourselves to be lacking them, we yearn for. Uh, So that establishes for Agathon something higher than human reason, that his Agathon's human reason now can devote itself to striving for, namely the beautiful and the good. Uh, Now if we stopped here, this would be the end of an account of Socrates making, not really making, but disclosing new gods, because we have the beautiful and we have the good as uh, the objects of aspiration. Uh, where the mode of striving is going to be using all of one's best powers, and that's going to include reason, uh, the world has been recentered from the human to the divine, and that reason which seemed to eclipse the divine now shows itself not as instrumental, but as a reason of aspiration. Um, I want to add to this, however, two uh, related reflections. Um, just let me ask, how am I doing on time? Okay? Right. So, two related reflections. Um, uh, actually, three. Right. The first is just the observation, which I think you've probably all done some discussion and thought about already, that when Socrates introduces this idea of the beautiful and the good as what Agathon as an erotic man lacks, um, Socrates has changed, if you will, the syntax of Greek metaphysics. Um, So in Pausanias' speech, we heard about the matching of opposites, elder and younger, um, the beautiful and the ugly, the wise and the ignorant. Um, In Ereximachus' speech, it's the opposites hot, cold, wet, dry, for the doctor, high, low, fast, slow, for uh, the harmonist or the rhythmist, uh, divine human, for the diviner, and so forth. When Socrates introduces this idea of eros as lacking, he replaces that symmetrical bipolar relation of contraries with now a threefold relation. Uh, There's the bad, there's the good, there's the in-between, the one who lacks, but it's much more than a threefold relation. I've done something much more than just provide a middle term because given that what one lacks um, one is the beautiful, one therefore also aspires to, what we've done is we've taken this horizontal uh, structure and we've turned it vertical. Um, the one lacking is aspiring to something beyond himself, something higher than himself. Um, and so it makes sense that Socrates has Diotima, who, by, by the way, I think is one of those others neglected by uh, the practice of reason uh, as a woman, has Diotima um, introduce the lacking not only of beauty and goodness, but also divinity. Eros is not a god but a daimon, um, striving out of need for what transcends it. Um, And the paradigm of this eros is the philosopher. Okay, so that's the first reflection. There's this radical change in the syntax of the Greek understanding of the intelligibility of things from a primacy of contrariety to the primacy of this lack and plenitude relationship in which the one lacking is striving uh, towards that fullness. Um, Now, so there we have, first of all, the uh, the beautiful and the good set up as that plenitude, as that divinity. uh, towards which we're striving. Now, there's more than that as well. So in the middle of Diatima's speech, she does this remarkable little two-step um, with the beautiful and the good. You remember she asks Socrates, well what is it that one who yearns for beautiful things yearns for? And Socrates says, well to have them for his own. And she says, and what does one in yearning for that yearn for? And he says, I don't have a clue. Right? This is like the question, what's the, po- what's the point of art? And you want to say, well, art for art's sake. You know, I, what, Socrates is dumbfounded. He has no reply. So Diotima says generously, well, uh, let's try this with regard to the good. might be easier. Um, what does one in yearning for the good yearn for? T- to uh, have, it, have it be his own. Um, and um, what does one in yearning for that yearn for? Now the answer is obvious. It's happiness. Um, and she introduces, um, after uh, some other reflections, which I won't carry on right now, we can later, she introduces this desire to have the good as one's own uh, into that, the idea that one wants the good to be one's own, not just for a moment, but forever. Um, And with that, she introduces the interpretation of Eros as striving for um, the good as a striving for immortality. Now that's important because, you know, she put the beautiful aside, now she can reintroduce the beautiful and another aspect of its divinity shows up, very powerful one. Um, How do we human beings, we mortals, uh, achieve immortality? Uh, We die, we're mortals, Um, by leaving something behind. Um, Physically, it's by leaving children behind. Spiritually, it's um, by the offspring of of our souls, the poems that we write the laws that we make, um, which are I- incarnations of sofrasune and justice, uh, she says. Okay. Now, what is it that that motivates that procreation, that leaving something behind? This is where she introduces beauty. She says, uh, uh, one aspires for tacos en kaloi, for procreation or begetting en kaloi, an amazing little phrase, in a beauty. Now, in can't be in in the sense in which something is in a drawer um, or other sorts of sexual senses that um, are sure to be called to mind uh, in this dialogue of all dialogues. Um, it's got to mean something like in the presence of. Um, uh, in the presence of beauty, one finds oneself, as it were, gladdened, uh, motivated to procreate. Um, so beauty, in other words, shows up. And let me just pause for a second. This is something that I'm sure all of you talked about this We can recognize from our own experience, um, when you're really in the company of somebody dear to you, really dear to you, uh, you're moved. Now, I want to say to speak. Actually, I think initially you're moved to stay quiet because you know that your ordinary form of speech won't be enough, won't do justice to what you're feeling. Uh, And that initial staying quiet is a way of uh, becoming attentive to and allowing to work upon you the beauty of the other, so that when you speak, what you say will be worthwhile, will be of value, will be appropriate to this love that you feel. Um, uh, That, by the way, is where I think Agathon has it right when he says that love makes us poets. Um, um. But the important point here is that beauty now, and it's not the beautiful, it's the a-beauty in which the beautiful is manifest, works upon us as a power. So it's not only the goal, the plenitude of our striving, it's also that which works upon us so as to motivate. And now I don't want to just say striving, but that form of striving which is speaking. And this brings us, this is my last reflection, uh, on the divinity of the beautiful um, to the higher mysteries. This famous passage at the end of Diotima's speech. She says to Socrates, and Plato has... Socrates, have her say to him in the narration, Socrates, you I think could have followed me up till now, but uh, the next thing's, you're just going to have to hang on for dear life. I'm not sure if you're up to this, uh, the famous higher mysteries. Now, let me just pause for a second to quickly interrupt and interject something. Uh, there's something very strange and interesting about the, pa- the passage right preceding, a couple of Stephanus pages right preceding, um, the introduction of the higher mysteries. We don't know the higher mysteries are coming when we first arrive at them. They come as a shock, there's more, oh my god. Uh, In the passage right before, there's an exquisitely interesting ambiguity. Um, So the lover in body produces children, in soul produces poems or laws uh, under the inspiration of the beauty of the beloved. Okay. Uh, Why? To secure undying fame. This takes the form of your your name being carried on by your physical offspring, or it takes the form of your reputation for having written those poems, for having written those laws. So Homer and Hesiod, their progeny, everyone wishes they had them because they've been remembered forever. Uh, Solon and Lycurgus, the same thing in in the sphere of law giving. Um, So the question arises, and remember this is for us sitting on the edge of our chair, um, listening to this dialogue read. What were these creations really for? was one creating so to speak for the sake of um, the content the thought itself of beauty as what we wanted to share with one's beloved or was one creating for the sake of being thought of by others as being such a great creator that ambivalence which we all feel all the time this is human all to human time right so, I mean, we need kierkegaard for this moment that ambivalence Uh, You want to say the brightest thing, Uh, why? Because you're driven by the insight, but also because you really want the applause, right? So if when I'm done, you sit there in silence, I'll feel um, (laughs) rightly received, right? Um, um, That ambivalence, that's the human all to human. When we go to the higher mysteries, the speaking that we do loses that uh, ambiguity, Uh, Now, the guide who guides us, guides us in such a way that each set of speeches that we give enable us to appreciate, and there's no mention of fame or reputation or how anybody else would hear, enables us to appreciate the beauty itself about which we're speaking more deeply. So just quickly to remind you, um, we, we start from one beautiful body, and then our guide shows us the beauty of another body, and as soon as we've seen that, we're in position to begin to appreciate that there's beauty in all bodies, and once we've seen that, we started to detach. Now, not from the first love, but from any fixation on that love, and that's a kind of spiritual opening to another kind of beauty than the beauty of bodies. So we find ourselves now capable of appreciating the beauty of soul, and we take that beauty. Um, and, and now we do more conversation. We talk with the beautiful soul that we're with. Uh, And we talk about daily practices, uh, the kinds of things that one would do to cultivate one's beauty. This is the talk that you do with your beloved when your concern is their well-being. What should we do such that the greatness of character that I see potentially in you will, will, will rise to the surface? And that conversation, unrestricted, extends itself beyond just you and me to talk about what it would be good for the soul to do until it reaches a level of generality, which we call it now, nomoi, we call it laws. Um, You can hear Pausanias coming back, but reinterpreted. Um, Now, when one's got that far to be able to speak at that level of generality about the beauty of the soul and what it is that, that allows that beauty to be cultivated and so forth, one has turned fully to another kind of beauty than bodily beauty. That moment is analogous to the turn from the beauty of one body to the beauty of another body. Only now we're operating at the level of kinds of beauty. Which is to say, we're ready, so let me remind you, we went from beauty of one body to another, that prepared us to see the beauty of all bodies. Now we're ready, having gone from one kind of beauty, of body, to another kind of beauty, of soul, to turn to other kinds of beauty. And with the capacity to speak generally, that is to say, to speak at the level of episteme, the sciences, so that it makes complete sense that Diotima should next introduce, now we start to turn to the beauty And she says ambiguously, of the sciences. Uh, This, I think, is one of those moments of of compressed platonic rhetoric that has a purpose. If we think that means the beauty that characterizes the sciences, we're back in Ereximachus' territory, praising not beauty, but the sciences. But if we think that means the beauty that the sciences are the disclosive servants of, music, this kind of beauty, medicine, that kind of beauty, etc., 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 then we're engaged in a discourse which is oriented towards now what this kind of beauty that kind of beauty that kind of beauty that kind of beauty the beauty of now remember of all bodies the beauty now of all kinds which precisely is belonging to no one of them will be beauty itself now what's, what 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 one wants to i mean we we can talk about that I, you know i say that advisedly, because the characterizations are all so negative. Um, and there's a real point to that, I think, and I want to come to that in just a second if, if I can manage it. But what I want to flag here, first of all, is that in the higher mysteries, the discourses that we do are actually modes of listening. We talk about beauty in such a way as to open ourselves to see it more deeply and to see it more extensively. Um, and um, That's the third aspect, so to speak, of the divinity uh, that Socrates gives Athens. We're given this plenitude that moves us to strive for it. We're given its power to quicken in us a capacity for discourse. And we're given in that discourse, if it's well-oriented by our guide, uh, a way of hearing beauty itself more deeply. Now, just a last remark on that, hearing. The more deeply we hear beauty, the more extensively we find it in the world, which means also the more transcendent we find it to be of any of the kinds of manifestation that it takes in the world. Um, uh, And so oddly, the more deeply we appreciate beauty, the more deeply we come to know precisely what it's not. Uh, And that's why I think Diotima ends with this extraordinary array of negative characterizations. It's not that that we're not in the face of beauty, it's rather that to be in face of beauty is to be in face of that which transcends the very spheres in which it makes itself manifest and so draws us towards it. Uh, And that's a divinity that orients reason. Be silent.